This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. And boom, we are live. Bill Miller, great to have you here. President and CEO, of course, of the American Gaming Association. How are you doing today? Up here, I'm great and uh, happy to be with you. Absolutely. It's fantastic to have you uh, here, Bill, of course. And uh, it's an honor, uh, actually, to, be, uh, to do this uh, recording with you, with you guys uh, here today. We've been uh, looking to have you on here for quite some time. So I really appreciate the, uh, the time today. Um, you know, uh, in preparation for uh, this podcast today, I was uh, reading up a little bit about you guys' uh, priorities, what you uh, guys are working on and, and so on. And uh, I came across uh, just recently... Um, uh, the uh, research that you guys published uh, and uh, on, on, on the last quarter and the quarterly results uh, within the gambling sphere in the uh, United States. And, uh, you know, um, coming from the online side of things, uh, I must say I was a little bit proud to see that uh, the online side of uh, gambling in the United States is eating more and more of the full cake uh, here with 23% market share uh, at the moment. So I wanted to do start on that note, uh, but you're saying, first of all, congratulations, uh, the industry is obviously doing really well over there. And I would love to just talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, what do we attribute this success to in, in both retail and online, but perhaps a little bit more on the online side. Well, I, I would certainly I'm, I'm happy to talk about all of the elements and, and probably I might uh, just tailor your comments a little bit to take the cake analogy. It's less about cutting the piece of the cake and actually just more enlarging the size of the cake. And I think right. that what we've seen is um, brick and mortar casinos in America continue to be the dominant piece of our business. You know, it's it's roughly three quarters of the business. And so and then we have certainly seen growth in both the uh, online online iGaming component as well as um, in legal sports betting that is grown, as you know, you know, since uh, the Supreme Court allowed uh, sports betting to happen in states other than Nevada back in May of 2018. So like my view is uh, we continue to be a thriving, successful entertainment option for Americans because they want to have a good time and they recognize that the way in which we're doing it uh, is in accordance with the way they think it should happen. Fair enough, fair enough. And, and just um, if we look forward uh, now, so obviously, uh, um, the, again, just zooming in on, online here, it's, um, mm -hmm. it's growing its market share and compared to land-based. Is this something you and your members uh, expect to continue? And if we zoom out a bit, if we look forward a couple of years, do you expect eventually that uh, online ever will overtake perhaps uh, retail? I think it's interesting. You know, it's always important to kind of uh, remind uh, viewers that the U.S. market is not one national market, but it's actually 51 different markets. If you just look at it from a, um, a jurisdictional perspective, each state determines what level of gaming that they want. You know, do they want uh, brick and mortar casinos? Do they have tribes? Do they have commercial operations? Do they have sports betting? Do they have sports betting that is in person or do they have sports betting that is mobile? And then do they have eye game? And what does that look like? And so each of the different, we now have uh, gaming in 45 states and the District of Columbia. So, you know, there's still a couple of states that, you know, it's up to their 
individual governments to decide what they want. And so it's it's always important, I think, you know, for, you know, global viewers and listeners to to understand a little bit that the U.S. market is not one national market, but it's actually you know, uh, this aggregation of a number of different markets with many different jurisdictional stakeholders. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And, and you know, something that um, I take notice of as well, you know, been following the, uh, the U.S. markets uh, evolving here over the last couple of years is that uh, in the beginning, um, the U.S. opportunity felt huge for the entire online gambling industry uh, across the world. Um, all operators, certainly on the European side, uh, were looking at the U.S. as a great opportunity. But, uh, but as time has gone on here, we are seeing kind of a pattern emerging where uh, it's almost turning out uh, that the market is becoming a bit of an oligopoly. Uh, we have kind of like mm. four incumbents that are covering most of the U.S. Um, online sports betting and online gambling today. Uh, and it's seemingly they are getting a stronger grip on the market uh, as time passes. Do, do you see this as an issue, the fact that it's uh, seemingly difficult for smaller operators to um, establish themselves? Um, I, I think that there's an economic rationality to every marketplace. And I think that um, businesses, um, you know, as they enter into a highly regulated space like ours, it is there are some difficult hurdles to overcome. Number one, you have to get licensed, and that licensing process is uh, quite onerous. And so, uh, what I think we've seen recently, particularly in the sports betting space, is tie-ups. And you've seen a number of different players that have entered into markets and states, and then they've looked at it and said, "All right, the cost of acquisition of customers is." Maybe uh, we're doing better in this state than in other states. And so we're going to reallocate our marketing and advertising spend to reflect that. And so it, that that settling out process is the same sort of settling out process that happens in every other business when they have a business opportunity and or a new market. Um, that being said, uh, you know, there's still a number of very big markets, certainly in the sports betting space, as well as many, many markets that have yet to have been opened up in the iGaming space. Um, and so, you know, in places like Florida and California and Texas and others, these are huge jurisdictional areas that currently are closed. And so my view is that the economic rationality that every business undertakes when they decide to invest capital, uh, technology, advertising, um, marketing, uh, all those are done with the idea of being able to create return. And and I think that, you know, we, we've seen in the United States a dynamic where in the case of sports betting, as as late as, you know, the, you know, the spring and summer of 2018, there was only one place in America where you could legally bet on sports. And here we are now with 38 states plus the District of Columbia legal. So, all of these in all of these jurisdictions, each of them had their own set of uh, jurisdictional um, uh, hurdles to overcome, uh, licensing fees to pay, um, you know, a number of competitors maybe already in and then they'd make decisions. And so uh, we've seen all of this happen in you know, five, five years. And so my, my, my view is I don't think I think it's far too early to 
decide that this is an oligopoly or this will ultimately be run by two or three or four companies uh, in the United States because I think that the opportunities are, are constructed by the individual jurisdictions in which they operate, whether they be tribal or state. Right. So the, the, the space is certainly heating up again at the moment with uh, Fanatics entering the mix, uh, ESPN bet, of course, with Pan and Bet365 entering the market. So uh, definitely a lot mm-hmm. to, uh, to look forward to here when we do a repeat of this interview, perhaps uh, in a year or two. Um, yeah. Bill, I want to change subject a bit over to uh, kind of RG and um, uh, yeah. f- first and foremost, a bit of a backdrop here. In, in the last uh, 12 months or so, uh, we've seen some quite major negative articles against the industry, and particularly the online uh, part of the industry. Obviously, uh, the New York Times, you know, we, we organized our Agamemnon New York event um, uh, this year and last year, and we had some of the New York Times reporters uh, at the event. Um, and we were kind of wondering a little bit what they were uh, out for there. And then eventually this, um, um, this big article um, uh, eventually was released. Um, you know, wh- why do you think these articles are happening now and um, what is the best res- what is the best way to respond to these type of um, kind of hit pieces as they can be at- interpreted to be and finally as well they, it, they, do they hold some form of merit do you feel is there anything that we can learn from this um, uh, response from the media um, well I, th- I think look at the AGA we believe very strongly in you know the operators that are our members and that the and the American industry and and you know we are unapologetic advocates on behalf of the industry. Um, We're an industry that's bigger than the airline industry. We're in almost every state in which we operate. We are one of, if not the highest tax rate payer in those states. We are incredibly valuable members of the communities in which we operate. And so, yeah, I spend a lot of time, my team spends a lot of time trying to correct the record with regard to reporters who have outdated or stereotypical you know, views of what the industry is based around movies that they might have watched. Um, and so uh, when you when the industry is continuing to see the growth and the success that we have had, it creates more interest and it creates, um, you know, more attention. And what we've certainly seen in the last five years with the growth of sports betting is significantly more act- interaction with uh, with the press and Oftentimes, that the press is, comes to us with a um, with a you know a predisposition with how they believe the story should go, and our job is to do everything we can to be rational and professional and tell them the facts. But we don't get to write the stories, and so you know when I think about who I care about from the perspective of the reputation of the industry, the commitment that the industry holds to the communities in which we operate, the commitment that our industry holds. And, and does every day in the responsible gaming space. Like I care about the American public. I care about the political public, the regulatory public. And, you know, if the media public wants to write bad stories about the industry, that's okay. Uh, we're going to do everything that we can to refute it. Letters to the editor, op-eds, and we do all of those things every day. But it's important to remember two thirds of Americans view they believe that the gaming industry here in america is a benefit to the u.s economy and more than two-thirds actually believe that the industry behaves responsibly where it operates and so i understand and i am absolutely acutely aware 
of where and when the industry has gone wrong in other places around the world. And my job and our team's job and our industry's job here in America is to make sure that we don't go in that place. We don't get to a place where the UK is or Spain or Italy or Australia. And I think that when we measure sentiment, sentiment, whether it be the American public that I just mentioned, the regulatory public that we engage with all the time and believes that we are committed to um, a, a mainstream entertainment industry and with the appropriate safeguards and protocols to ensure that people are having fun, but they're not um, putting themselves at risk. And when they are putting that small subset that is at risk, we're putting the resources together to support and help those people. And so, again, uh, for, for the media that wants to sensationalize everything from politics to entertainment to the gaming industry, I understand it. I appreciate it. I don't take it personally, but I refute it with the real numbers that matter. Right. And, and so perhaps it's even an opportunity to, uh, to speak up when, uh, when these uh, articles uh, appear. Yeah. Uh, st still, though, Billy, you know, maybe there is uh, some space for uh, introspection. Um, you know, I'm curious to know a little bit of your um, AGA stance on RG, like so it, from an online perspective. So, you know, you mentioned regulators in the UK taking it too far, for example. We, we've seen, obviously, mm -hmm. in Europe here, uh, where, where I'm based as well, uh, it's very common now for regulators to uh, pursue affordability checks, uh, stop loss mm -hmm. limits, um, and quite intrusive uh, kind of limits on players and uh, the operators in order to uh, to safeguard the players. Uh, do, do you feel the regulators in Europe uh, are going too far when it comes to these type of measures? And what would you say is like the ideal uh, approach to RG? Is there anything specific? Do you think you're already there as an industry today? Or do we still think we have some more work to be to be done on the RG front? I think that, and I, I can't speak for Europe really or for the rest of the world, but I can speak for the U.S. operators here. The commitment, the forward-leaning commitment um, that the industry and the Asin industry association, the AGA, put in on RG is incredible. Um, we've never seen more resources dedicated towards problem gambling um, and responsible gaming from an advertising and marketing perspective, from a uh, from the perspective of how do we make sure that this is an industry that is sustainable for the long haul and that we don't replicate the issues that were created in some of these other jurisdictions that you've talked about? Um, I think that everyone here recognizes that if the industry is ever seen to be predatory, it's not at all unlikely or it shouldn't be you know, uh, something that is unexpected if regulators and politicians come in heavy on behalf on, against the industry. And so um, I think that that's why you see such a forward lean into RG in the US because people want to get it right. They want to get sports betting right. They want to get the online uh, eye gaming right. And I think that we start with a strong foundation where people see the gaming industry whether it was brick and mortar or riverboats or Las Vegas and these other places. And they say, you know, I don't know what I thought about the gaming industry, but when they came to my community and they built a casino here, they built a casino 
on the same place where there used to be an automotive factory that shut down 20 years ago. And so they're an economic catalyst. They've created jobs in a place that there were no jobs. And they are helping with community involvement and, and support for social services and paying significant numbers of uh, amount of taxes and creating jobs in a community that lost many jobs because of some other, other industry that went away. And so my view is we start off with a reservoir of goodwill because of what we do in all of these communities in which we have built properties. And so then when you layer on sports betting and iGaming, you start off with a, with a fundamental commitment to responsibility that the regulators believe, and they should believe it because, because it's true. Right, and, and perhaps another perspective here as well is uh, the um, the elephant in the room, I suppose, in the, in the U.S. Uh, gambling market, which is the black market uh, that uh, mm -hmm. kind of coexists uh, to, to, to some extent. Uh, I, I was reading your report uh, here, Bill, that stated that uh, on the online side of things, the uh, iGaming uh, black market is three times bigger estimated uh, than the actually uh, actual regulated uh, iGaming market. Obviously, this is because uh, only seven states is um, regulated in uh, for iGaming in in in, uh, in the United States. But nonetheless, it's an incredible amount of money that is going to uh, black market uh, operators today. And um, perhaps uh, uh, as well, one of the um, considerations here when you look at RG and taxes and restrictions and so on is the fact that you don't want to. Uh, restrict the regulated operators too much uh, to the point where the regulated players uh, move over to the uh, unregulated space uh, as well, right? So my, my question um, to you on the uh, in regards to the online uh, in regards to the um, unregulated space in the uh, North American market mm -hmm. is uh, like like uh, genuinely is there a way to thwart the uh, uh, black market operators, particularly particularly in the online space I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, now. Is there any like strong measures that you can actually, or other than just education, let's say, which is a straightforward thing, but is, is there, is there other, other measures that you guys are looking at to restrict the, the black market operators? Well, I'm glad that you brought this up because it, it really is, you know, probably from, the, from a prioritization perspective for the AGA, um, responsibility and continuing and modernizing what responsible gaming looks like in a technology in a technology oriented business is is front of mind for us and the greatest risk to the regulated industry is the illegal industry whether it be you know illegal offshore websites that are available to consumers in regulated states um, in the United States or in places where Gaming is illegal and iGaming and or online sports betting is illegal. These sites, these sites and these operators have no consumer protections. They have no RG built into them. They really don't care about affordability. And quite frankly, if you win money on them, you have no, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be paid and there's no law enforcement that's going to support you if that's the case or regulatory. So. Look, the, the illegal market, whether it be the offshore um, operators that are here in America, are a massively high priority for us. Working with law enforcement to try and get them to prioritize it. Working with payment providers to try and make sure that they understand that they should not be, you know, helping to facilitate financial transactions with unregulated sites. And then as it relates to um, you know, search engines and, and social media platforms that host these 
uh, sites. We have communicated, we continue to communicate with uh, law enforcement at the federal, state, and local levels to get them to prioritize both um, supporting and protecting the legal industry in the state and jurisdictions that they operate, and also to enforce the law to prevent consumers from being taken advantage of, whether it be actual machines that look and operate exactly like a slot machine, but are not regulated and not taxed, or in the case of online operations that are based somewhere outside of the jurisdiction of the United States that use, uh, that operate in the U.S., working with uh, U.S. consumers and working through uh, uh, online platforms and American payment processors. We're uh, doing everything that we can to better educate the U.S. Department of Justice, the FBI, the state's attorneys general, and other law enforcement, as well as the regulators within the states that operate legal regulated industry, because they also have this at risk. The, the consumers that they care about, that they're elected to protect, they recognize that when they authorized legal gaming in their state, that they wanted it to be regulated. And we are a highly, highly regulated industry. But yet, somehow or another, these people, these, you know, whether it be uh, skill machines that look like uh, slot machines in convenience stores or online websites that look and look and operate exactly like um, an online sports book or a legal iGaming um, uh, app, they're allowed to, to, to flourish. And so, it is the highest priority of ours is to do is to bring the, to this to the attention, the education uh, part that you mentioned a few moments ago, but more than that, to get action. And I think that uh, we're beginning to see traction in Congress, much higher degree of awareness among actual stakeholders that have a now a vested interest. You know, look, it, before sports betting was made legal in, uh, in America, for, you know, maybe a Nevada legislator might care about what the sports betting market looks like in America. Now you have 38 states plus the District of Columbia that now have a vested interest in supporting a legal market and deterring an illegal market. And so I think that, you know, look, the uh, the market opportunity has been quick and fast. And I've been in government or advising government or lobbying government most of my life. And it's hard for me to see a parallel where something has gone from one state to this many states in America this quickly. And so it's not surprising that law enforcement might be a little bit slow to catch up to the market. But I think that we're getting it. and it's good. It is never going to be easy. The illegal guys, they don't pay taxes. They don't have any regulatory compliance. But as of today, they're still able to build an app and market an app in America without paying taxes and out having, without having regulatory. And if they're going to continue to do that, unless law enforcement or someone stops them, why wouldn't you continue to do that? Because you are operating a business with a, mar with a significant advantage over the people that actually have to pay taxes and they have to be regulated and have to um, operate within the, you know, the, con the confines of the regulated system. So, uh, it's an unfair advantage. Uh, it's an illegal advantage. It is one that preys on consumers, and it's one that we will 
prioritized until we get satisfaction, which I is which I believe will be a long and difficult process. Yeah, you know, I I think back, Bill, to the mid two thousands, the early mid two thousands, during the online poker boom that uh, took place mm-hmm. at that time worldwide. You know, I was a poker player myself yep. uh, during during those uh-huh. years, and um, I remember clearly uh, the uh, European and kind of foreign. Uh, offshore operators operating freely in the North American market at that time. And um, then from one day to the other, it was this infamous Black Friday that took place where the hammer came down uh, from the U.S. legal system. I believe it was uh, Sheldon Addison and kind of the the, the old guard at that time um, that uh, that kind of led that push for the uh, for, for 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 action being taken um, at that time. But it feels a little bit like we are in the same situation today, where mm-hmm. uh, massive brands are becoming almost household brands in the U.S. that are totally mm-hmm. offshore um, uh, offshore companies. Uh, do do you do you think just like shortly like could we see a kind of like Black Friday 2.0 event in the U.S. at some point. Well, we're working on it. We we work yeah. every day to try and uh, uh, get law enforcement to prioritize this. And and again, it, you have to remember that this dynamic is fast growing and new. And so, yep. the market opportunities that are legal and regulated are new opportunities. And law enforcement is in a process of constant, they're in the constant state of prioritization. You know, what's the most important thing? Terrorism or sex trafficking or right. this or that. And and it and we are in the business of making sure that the prioritization of yep. illegal gambling in America is one that law enforcement thinks about. And so <clears throat> I think that we have a stronger group of allies up on Capitol Hill and at Treasury and at the FBI and the Department of Justice. And we're increasingly engaging state's attorney generals who care about fraud and they care about, you know, consumer protections. And, you know, at the federal level, money laundering is at the top of people's list. And so when we are able to raise these issues with law enforcement, I think that we are gaining increasing attention and I believe increased enforcement action. Um, We're certainly seeing that in places where um, regulators are sending cease and desist letters to offshore operators. And, you know, look, it's not easy to serve papers in, you know, Curacao or some other place. And so it is admittedly a challenging dynamic to uh, police the Internet, if you will. But it has been done before. You mentioned the Black Friday of 2011. And we believe that, uh, you know, a sustained pressure campaign that we are engaged in, both in the online space as well as the illegal machines, uh, is bearing fruit today. And we will uh, continue to work until we're able to, you know, uh, you know, be more and more successful in protecting the, le- the legal regulated marketplace. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, switching topic uh, uh, here onto something uh, more exciting is, of course, uh, that in a couple of weeks uh, we have uh, one of the biggest uh, gaming shows in the world taking place at G2E. Uh, the American Gaming Association, of course, uh, uh, holds this event together with G2E. And I'm curious to know, Bill, what's your expectations for the event in 2023? What can we look forward to this year? Well, I think this year's G2E is going to be the best ever. Um, you know, we've come off of a a couple of challenging years, right? We, uh, 
you know, we had two years where we really, you know, uh, because of COVID, we weren't able to, able to gather. And, and this was not, you know, it's not certainly not unique to the gaming industry, but, um, you know, we had to, we had to think differently. We weren't able to convene. And so, um, you know, last year was extraordinary. The year before was pretty good. Um, I think this year is going to be extraordinary. We'll have more than 25,000 people there. Uh, more than 350 exhibitors expected, nearly 100 different education sessions planned. And so I am very excited about G2E uh, for this year. Um, I think we've got some great speakers lined up. And so I, I am, uh, uh, I think every year, every time around this year, <laughs> like our entire staff, it, everything is focused in and around G2E because, uh, you know, we don't have a huge team. But everybody leaves our offices in Washington, D.C. and camps, you know, uh, we all go out to Las Vegas and and work on making sure that we can bring the best uh, the best out in the industry. And I think that that's what you see there. You see um, what's new and exciting. You see new products and innovation. You see business deals taking place. Um, and it's not just American. It's, you know, people come from all over the world. And what we're seeing is, you know, increasingly now that the entire world has opened up post-COVID, uh, you know, where you're just seeing these new and evolving, uh, you know, markets that are really looking to expand their gaming options, they're going to come to G2E because that's the place they can go and see what does a gaming floor look like? What are the advances in security and financial transactions and um, entertainment options. All of that is in one place between October 9th and October 12th in Las Vegas. As the king of the castle here, to some extent, uh, Bill, you know, president CEO of uh, AGA, who's behind this uh, mega project, like how, how does a how does a day at E2E look like for Bill Miller? Are you able to breathe during this uh, during these days? <laughs> uh, it, it, they are long days. Um, they are long days. Um, uh, you try, you definitely try and hydrate in the desert. Um, you definitely try and make sure that, uh, you are, you recognize that there's always, there's going to be a time differential. It's not going to be the same as a time differential for you. Um, but it's still from Washington, to Las Vegas, you know, it's a, you know, we get three hour time differential and usually the first couple of days are the hardest because, uh, we're in planning mode. And so, you know, you're on East Coast time, your body is on East Coast time. And so you wake up at around, you know, four o'clock in the morning, and then there's events and dinners and all of these things in the night. And so, you know, the first couple of days end up being 20 hour days. Um, <laughs> as you get towards Wednesday and Thursday, it becomes a little bit easier. But uh, you're certainly uh, uh, when 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 the end of the show comes, uh, you know, you, you're a little bit worn out. But you're worn out in a good way um, because you're able to see so many friends, see so many people that are, you know, so important to the industry. Uh, you have opportunities to talk to the media. And we obviously have had, you know, great opportunities to bring, you know, you know, the industry to outlets like CNBC and global, national, global and national outlets and, and yourselves. And so from our perspective, G2E is incredibly important. Uh, everybody, uh, has sore feet at the end of that, uh, um, week because you're walking the show floor, <laughs> uh, you're going to dinners and receptions and meetings. And, uh, it is, uh, it's, 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 it's a grind, but it's a happy grind. 
Yeah, that's for sure. It's Red Bull by day and melatonin by night. That's that, that's my secret, at least. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's a good one. The Red Bull part's dangerous, but yeah, like uh, the melatonin part, I fully subscribe. Yeah, so everything in moderation, my friend. Um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, again, going back, going full circle here. Uh, in the beginning, we talked about the fact that uh, the online uh, side is uh, is again growing, mm-hmm. growing market share in uh, North American gambling. What about the G2E? Is online becoming more prevalent at the conference this year as well, do you think? I do. I think that online continues to be something that is uh, very interesting. Uh, I think that we'll, you know, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in some of the states that have adopted iGaming. Um, but there, it's un, I think that COVID showed, and I've, I've talked about this many times, COVID showed that the omni-channel experience for brands was very important. And so when you had a casino that was shut down because of COVID, but you had a digital property in a particular state, that you recognize that this was important, quite frankly, to the survival during COVID for you know many of these businesses. But then when customers came back, those same businesses, um, the brick and mortars I'm talking about specifically, but also include the others, that when people came back, they, they, the businesses, the brick and mortar businesses recognized that there was a value, a synergistic value between the people that were on property as well as the people that enjoyed the brand when they were on their phone or at home. And so I think that you saw kind of a, a kind, of, uh, kind of philosophical change among many of the business leaders about digital and iGaming. And so I think that we had, we saw it last year. We'll see it again. We have specific areas for iGaming this year. We have, you know, a number of, of uh, projects that we're working with you, you know, kind of pardon the disruption and some of these other kind of really cool opportunities to listen and hear from people, quite frankly, that are really pushing what iGaming can and should look like. And, you know, I think giving an opportunity for some of the, um, you know, larger brands to say, yeah, we should explore this. And I think that you will see increased amount of uh, interest in iGaming. I think it, there's no question it was one of the areas that was very, very uh uh, well represented last year, and it is absolutely going to be well represented this year as well. Amazing. Uh, we are certainly excited as well. Uh, on our side, uh, we are hosting five uh, panels, including the uh, part of the disruption uh, session that you pointed out to. We're excited to uh, be a part of that and, and uh, show the uh, kind of American and global audience uh, some more interesting insights on the, on the online front for sure. Uh, just a, a last question as well on the uh, on the G2E side of thing. Um, is what, yep. what are you most excited for, Bill, uh, about the conference? Is there anything that stands out to you? Any particular session or event or part of the event that uh, is a favorite of yours that we should all perhaps pay a little bit more attention to? Well, I, I, no, I my view is that G2E is a little bit like uh, you know to paraphrase that Forrest Gump movie. When Forrest Gump said life is like a box of chocolates, <laughs> you, you really do have an opportunity to kind of build your own adventure at G2E because our goal is to make sure that, you know, for the attendees and the exhibitors, we're matching up their individual interests. And so I believe that we have a show that represents all faction, 
factors of the industry. And it's really up to the individuals to say, all right, here's what my business is, or here's what I'm most interested in. And then chart out that path for those four days to say, you know what, this is how I'm going to maximize my time in Las Vegas between from the 9th to the 12th. And so I, I think that, you know, for each individual that comes, um, for each exhibitor, uh, they all have slightly different goals. Um, but I think that the one thing that we all share is that this is the place globally where the industry shows its best and its brightest and its, and its most innovative and new concepts um, and designs for games, applications, et cetera. And so I think that, it, you know, I, 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 I look at G2E every year and every year I come back and I'm kind of blown away with the, the different uh, opportunities and business creativity that is put forth on the show floor. Very exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to come over myself this year, of course, as well. Uh, final question for you uh, here today, Bill. Uh, looking forward now into 2024, what would you say are the top priorities for the American Gaming Association? What are you looking to accomplish and what's your top uh, priorities? Well, I think that the AGA, our, our mission is to continue to advance and protect the industry, the regulated industry here in, in the U.S. Um, and I think that that will never be, that will never change. I think that the, the issue sets for what are the most, the highest level of priority, um, I think are unquestionably going to continue to be um, the defense of, protection of the regulated marketplace and the you know eradication or at least um lessening the impact of the illegal market um and by increased education increased uh partnership with regulators law enforcement and policymakers, that is job one and then job two is to continue to remind people of our commitment to responsibility our 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 community focus around how this industry continues to be a major job creator, economic engine, uh, important taxpayer for the states and states and tribal governments in which we operate, as well as making sure that people recognize and understand um, that our, our intent is to be a good citizen in all of the communities in which we operate. So uh, that is more than a full time job, but uh, we're up to the test there and uh, we enjoy it every day. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for donating your time here to me today. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at G2E in a couple of weeks. Me too. Thank you. <laughs>